From the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, this is Great Talks at the APS, a podcast where we ask scholars about some of the most thought-provoking talks given at the society. Since 1743, the APS has hosted the greatest minds from around the world to talk about cutting-edge research, new discoveries, and timeless issues. Listen in every month for a new episode. And now here's your host, Dr. Patrick Spiro. Hello, and welcome to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society, a podcast that celebrates the big ideas and great thinkers who have shaped our world. I'm your host, Patrick Spiro, librarian of the American Philosophical Society. On today's episode, we'll talk to Victoria Johnson, Associate Professor of Urban Policy and Planning at Hunter College in New York City. Dr. Johnson came to the APS to give a talk about her new book, American Eden, a finalist for the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. American Eden tells the story of early American doctor, scientist, and APS member David Huzik. On this episode, we'll talk about Huzik, the history of science, and New York City's place in the early republic. So first question, did I get his name right? You did. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Great. Well, uh, Professor Johnson, uh, we're thrilled to have you here. And I just had a, a general question. American Eden is this wonderful window into the early republic, into New York City, into Philadelphia, and into this early uh, national period. And I was surprised when I looked at your background that you're actually trained in 19th century European history. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us how you came to write the book that you did. It was a convoluted path. Um, I actually am a sociologist by a PhD and in historical sociology. Um, my first book was on the Paris Opera in the 18th and 19th century. My two passions are opera and the natural environment. When I was finished working on my first book, I was casting about for a topic that would allow me to pursue my other passion, the, the natural environment. And somebody in passing said something about botanical gardens. And I had grown up being taken to botanical gardens and to the opera. And I suddenly realized botanical gardens are founded by some of the same people for some of the same reasons. They have the same organizational structure. And when I say the same reasons, of course, opera and plants are very different things. But they are institutions that are uh, were often created by citizens trying to improve their cities, uh, both culturally and scientifically. So the jump looks unusual, and uh, that was the path from 19th century France to the early Republic, uh, because the garden I chose to write about was the first public botanical garden in the United States. Great. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this garden? Yeah, it was founded in 1801 by David Husick, who was a young New York doctor. Huzzick had been born in New York City in 1769, and he grew up during the British occupation of New York City, surrounded by blood and disease and death, and he dreamed of becoming a doctor. He discovered medical botany during studies in Great Britain, 
where he was training at the University of Edinburgh and then in London. And when he returned to the United States in his mid-20s in the summer of 1794, he began to dream of founding a public botanical garden for New York and the nation in which to conduct medical research because most of the medicines known to doctors at the time came from plants. So he set out to create this garden and um, it took a lot of work to come up with the funds and finally he uh, founded it in 1801. I was really interested to read about Huzzock's training because, as you mentioned, he grew up during the American Revolution and a period when the United States was separating from Great Britain, and yet so much of his training and really mentorship and intellectual inspiration came from Great Britain. So could you talk a little bit about Great Britain's place in this story? Yeah, it, I was a little surprised by that too. And then I began to, to see how many uh, young people of Huzzock's generation who had grown up during the revolution, um, actually went to, to Britain for their training. Um, and of course, he was following in the footsteps of his mentors, including Benjamin Rush, who had also studied at the University of Edinburgh, which was then the greatest medical faculty in the world. When Huzzock got to England, to Scotland and England, he told Rush in a letter how surprised he was at how kind the British were to their erstwhile foes. But he did say they were very kind. I was very touched by you know the likes of Sir Joseph Banks welcoming Huzzock and mentoring him. But he said the British are quietly waiting for the American experiment to fail. And that was one of the reasons Huzzock came back and caught fire with a passion to found not only the Botanical Garden, but many other civic institutions as well, kind of to show the British. It was nice to see that Huzzock got that full recognition from the Royal Society. He wasn't treated as a foreign member, but a full fellow of the Royal Society. And that really got me thinking about Huzzock and his, and his legacy. In his time, how well known was he? And how did that change to the point that I would say he's an unknown figure today? Huzzock was so famous during his lifetime that when he suffered a stroke in 1835, at the age of 66, uh, he was uh, laid low for days. And during that period, newspapers from New Hampshire to South Carolina ran bulletins uh, about his condition and offered prayers for his recovery. The famous Dr. Huzzock is, is laid low. He died from that stroke. and. The eulogies and remembrances said that we've lost one of our great Americans. Today, I always take a show of hands in the audience who's heard of David Huzzock. It's if, if there's a botanist in the audience, perhaps. If there's uh, you know someone who knows a lot about Hamilton and Burr, a hand goes up. But he really, truly is forgotten. And it's one of the reasons I was so enchanted by his story when I came across it and became kind of obsessed with recapturing the life of this incredibly influential and charismatic American who kept the channels open between American and European botany for decades. What remains of Huzzock in terms of correspondence? Where did you do the research to recover this, this life? His archives, his papers are scattered all over the place. I ended up going to over 30 archives in the United States and Europe just looking for every scrap of paper I could find connected with him. One reason his papers are scattered is that he, he was involved in so many different institutions. He was a polymath, like many of his friends. But even more than most of his friends, he was involved in founding over a dozen 
institutions. So, and some of those institutions have survived, for example, the New York Historical Society, but many, you know, the papers of those institutions have been scattered themselves into different places. And because Hessek wasn't a famous politician, his papers weren't collected into a critical edition. So it was it was quite a detective hunt, which, you know, for any historian is most of the fun is is following that trail. I I went to every place I could, not only to find the archival sources, but also just to go to the physical places he had been and see if there was any trace of him, what he had laid eyes on. And there's very little left. Um, The botanical garden he founded, that land became Rockefeller Center. So if you go to Rockefeller Center, it takes a lot of imagining to think your way back to when it was a 20-acre bucolic botanical garden. I'm, I'm working on some projects that maybe we can talk about to recapture his memory and honor him again. His 250th birthday is coming up. So, Can you take us back to New York City when there was the Elgin Botanical Garden? W- walk us through what this experience would have been like. Uh, most of uh, New York City was, of course, in the very toe of Manhattan, below what is where City Hall is today, the, uh, the City Hall that was completed in the second decade of the 19th century. So way downtown. And the rest of the island was covered with farms and country houses. The forests had mostly been cut down, but there were some groves here and there. Huzzick went three and a half miles north of New York City to find a large enough piece of property to buy to build his botanical garden. So three and a half miles up a country lane called the Middle Road. Today, that is Fifth Avenue and his land as Rockefeller Center. And to get up to that countryside, that piece of property, he rode through farms, this pastoral landscape, and his property was covered with violets and viburnum, mountain laurel, grand old oak trees, and he could see both rivers from the highest point. You kind of have to time travel to, to recapture what that was like, and that's one of the reasons I fell in love with this story, was the effort, could I render that on the page in a way that would transport the reader back through the layers of this city, this very dense city, into that garden. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about Huzzik's vision for this garden? What, what did he want to accomplish? He had in mind something rather new. He knew about Bartram's garden, which was, uh, of course, an uh, older garden founded in 1728 by the Bartram family outside Philadelphia, a very famous and very important garden. The Bartrams are giants of early American botany. But what Hasek had in mind was slightly different. He, he wanted to found a, a research institution that would be run by the government for the citizens. It took a decade of work to convince his fellow citizens that that was worth funding. Initially, he, he just couldn't persuade people that walling in plants and collecting plants from around the world was a worthwhile thing to do. Some people mocked him and said, all of New York State and even most of Manhattan Island is covered with plants. We can just go pick them. Why do we need to put a wall around them and grow them there and study them there? And what Hezek had in mind was an institution that has more in common with our research institutions today, like the CDC or the National Institutes of Health, than with a a park. He wanted to conduct uh, chemical research on 
native plants on non-native plants, trying to see if he could identify new plant-based medicines and if he could identify native replacements, substitutes for very expensive imported plants such as Peruvian bark, which you know this could not be grown in Manhattan and the importing sources you know could dry up at any moment. So he had he had great ambitions to make this a, a classroom, a, a pharmacy of sorts, and also an agricultural research station, which he did. And as a doctor, he applied some of his study. I remember in particular the story of Philip Hamilton, uh, but also during the yellow fever epidemic, uh, ways in which he was approaching disease and illness differently because of his knowledge about plants and their use. So can you tell us a little bit about Huzzick as a physician, because he was a researcher, he's a scientist, he's a botanist, but he's also a practicing physician that had a really profound career uh, treating a number of prominent individuals. Huzzick, he sort of had one foot in the past medically and one in the future. In the way he had a foot in the past was that he did occasionally resort to bloodletting and the use of mercury. But unlike many of his peers, he saw it as he saw those measures as as last resort. What he was trying to do, and this is because of his medical studies and botany studies in Britain, he was trying to see if he could help identify specific medicines for specific illnesses. Mercury and bloodletting were very blunt instruments and often fatal, of course. And he was looking for gentler and more effective treatments in the plant world. The yellow fever epidemic, in when many people were bleeding patients or using mercury, he reached for a plant called Eupatorium perfoliatum, or bone set, which is a sudorific, so it makes you sweat profusely. And you know it actually doesn't cure yellow fever. Uh, he didn't know that. No one knew what caused yellow fever at the time. But what he did was try to use gentler treatments that wouldn't kill people. And he may have prevented some deaths by not weakening them right, you know, by bleeding right when they were uh, at their weakest. So he, he was experimental. He was trying to move medicine forward. Uh, but he was doing so in an age when the role of microbes in diseases had not yet been identified. Yeah, and that's one of the questions I had was the efficacy of some of his treatments. Were there any that today make a lot of sense, uh, that, you know, inadvertently or, you know, purposefully, uh, he had recognized in plants uh, a use that hadn't been known before? We don't have a record of his having come up with a, a new cure for a particular illness. And I think that's one reason he's not been celebrated and remembered. But he did something that I think is equally important, and that is that he he trained a generation of young physicians in the scientific method right when the pharmaceutical industry, um, pharmacological research, was turning to uh, chemistry labs away from gardens. And he taught this new generation of American medical students the scientific methods that he had learned at the heart of the Scottish Enlightenment in Edinburgh, so that as they moved knowledge forward and forward and forward, they had the tools scientifically to do this research, even though their hypotheses were completely different from his. And I think that you know, even though he didn't find one cure for a particular illness, that that legacy, it's, it's one that's harder to celebrate because it's harder to see. I think it's equally important. 
I want to talk about another issue you raised, which was funding this garden that he had, which is a big part of the book, um, this potential and the promise of the garden and getting the support necessary to realize it. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? He lobbied for first for four years, um, trying to get the funding from Columbia and the state of New York to found this garden. And he would buttonhole people in the street. He had a knack for making friends. He was eventually his friends with everybody, um, not just the high and mighty, but he, he had an enormous circle of acquaintances. And he just could not quite convince people. So he, after a couple of years of getting promised funds by Columbia, and then they were too uh, impoverished an institution at the time to deliver on it, he just gave up and went into debt and bought 20 acres of land with his own money. Like a lot of entrepreneurs then and now, he thought, I just have to show people what I have in mind, and then they'll come on board. And so he went ahead with his own money, and he wrote to people all over the world asking for plant specimens. He just built this thing from the ground up by himself, ended up with more than 3,000 species of plants there. He built a 200-foot conservatory. And it took 10 years of lobbying of, you know, his best friend was DeWitt Clinton, who was a fairly powerful man, and they had become friends in college at, at Columbia. And finally, in 1810, the state of New York came to its senses and voted after multiple failed votes over the previous years, voted to turn the garden into a public institution officially. And it was renamed the State Botanic Garden. And the state of New York bought it from Husek to run for the public benefit. So he, he did achieve his dream finally, but it took a decade of work and over a million in today's dollars out of his own pocket. He went into terrible debt to do it. Wow. Um, and then he also gets to realize his garden a second time later in life. Uh, he relocates, if I remember correctly, to, to Hyde Park. Can you take us to the second garden that uh, Huzzit created on, on the banks of the Hudson? So the sad part of the story is that after the state of New York purchased the garden, it uh, realized that it didn't know how to run a botanical garden, and it was a very expensive proposition. The state of New York eventually gave it to Columbia College. Columbia hung on to the land, was not that interested in running a garden, and also didn't have very much money at the time. And Huzzik watched the garden collapse. I don't consider Columbia a villain in this story. They, they really did not have the funds to run it. It was three miles north of New York City at this point. And they also realized they were sitting on a very valuable piece of real estate at the heart of Manhattan. Huzzik tried to get the garden back over and over and rebuild it, but he couldn't persuade Columbia to lease it back to him. So finally he gave up, and he, by this point, had been widowed twice, and his third wife, uh, Magdalena Coster, was a very, very wealthy woman who happened to be the widow of one of his creditors on the botanical garden in a bit of poetic justice. And with her blessing and money, he purchased an estate that had belonged to his mentor, uh, Samuel Bard. And that estate was an estate that Huzzik knew well. He had visited for decades. And it was next door to the Roosevelt Estate at Hyde Park. Huzzik expanded Bard's house there and redesigned the landscape. And because he had lost his botanical garden at the heart of Manhattan, he began recreating his own private botanical garden, recreating a private Elgin 
at this at this property where he didn't have to worry about funders and uh, colleges and medical students and so on. One of the big themes that comes through in your book is this idea of funding politics, of which DeWitt Clinton embodies that in science. And Huzzik is a really unique character in the sense that, as you mentioned, he's friends with everybody, does not seem to get engaged in politics. And one of the relationships that I found most intriguing is the one that he has with Alexander Hamilton and Burr. Can you talk a little bit about, first off, how you mentioned if, if, if people know of his name, it's because of Burr and Hamilton. Can you talk about his role in, in that moment, uh, the duel between the, both of them, and then also their, the relationships that he had with both? Yeah. This was when I started American Eden, I started because I was interested in the botanical garden. And uh, yes, I thought that's interesting that he was the attending physician at the Hamilton-Burr duel, but I wasn't particularly interested in that, and this was before the Hamilton musical. So it, it really wasn't my main focus, and as I followed the course of his life, I realized that his work at the Botanical Garden and his cutting-edge medical practice and his clinical skills brought him into the homes of greatest New Yorkers, as well as the most impoverished. And two of those were Hamilton and Burr. In 1797, Huzzick was called to the bedside of Philip Hamilton, who was 15 years old. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was away in Connecticut on a business trip. Huzzick was called in by an older doctor who was at its at his wit's end. Philip Hamilton was near death. We don't know exactly what he had. Uh, Huzzick thought it was uh, something like typhus or scarlet fever. And Huzzick managed to save Philip Hamilton's life. He earned Alexander Hamilton and Eliza Hamilton's undying trust as a physician because of that uh, event. This was their precious eldest son. Huzzick then became the, the main family physician to the Hamiltons. Meanwhile, he was becoming the family physician uh, through his his business partner, his medical partner, Samuel Bard. He was becoming the physician to Aaron Burr and his daughter, Theodosia. Aaron Burr's wife, Theodosia, had uh, passed away by this point, and Huzzick was caring for Burr and Theodosia when needed. This meant that when Burr and Hamilton met at Weehawken, Huzzick was the logical choice to be the attending physician. He was certainly closer to Hamilton than he was to Burr, and Hamilton was the duelist with whom Huzzick traveled across the Hudson to Weehawken. Huzzick was the one who helped Hamilton, keep Hamilton alive across the Hudson on the way back. Hamilton was, of course, delirious and uh, near death, and Huzzick went so far as to pour smelling salts into Hamilton's mouth to just try to keep him alive. And Huzzick was with Hamilton when he died the next day. But then the story of Huzzick and Burr, it seems to, that their relationship grows stronger later in life. I couldn't believe how prominent Burr was in Huzzick's life after that duel, that Huzzick, unlike so many other Americans and New Yorkers, didn't seem to hold grudges against anybody and always seemed to be above the fray of, of politics. And I had no idea that Burr had such an interest in botany. Discovering Burr's interest in botany was one of the really exciting parts of this research. It's a really unexpected side of him. And it's one that kept Burr and Huzzick close, but it's not the only reason they stayed close. Um, it's remarkable 
you know, at first when I was following this relationship, I kind of held it against Huzzock. How could you stay friends with Aaron Burr? And, you know, you referenced the fact that Huzzock tried to stay above the political fray. He told, uh, actually, he was the secretary of the American Philosophical Society, in a letter, he was trying to nominate DeWitt Clinton to be a member of the American Philosophical Society in the second decade of the 19th century after Husick himself had been elected a member in 1810. And he nominated Clinton by saying, I don't agree with his politics, but he's truly a man of science. Husick said, science knows not party politics. This is an extraordinary statement uh, to our ears. And it did allow him to stay close with everybody who's interested in people for what they could do for the city, for the nation, for science, for art. But there's a, another part of the story which we can't overlook, which is that as a doctor, if you're only willing to treat you know, Democratic Republicans, you're severely, or Federals, you're li limiting your practice. So he really tried not to get involved in politics also for that practical reason. Yeah, and even later in life when people are lobbying him to run for office, he again demurs because he doesn't want to get into partisan politics. As his biographer, do you have any sense on which side of the line he fell, Federalist versus Republican? I think he leaned Federalist. Okay. <laughs> he, he... That, I think that's what he meant when he said, I don't agree with DeWitt Clinton's policies. Yeah, I think he was not a populist. He he had a vision of elite society that aligned him with Federalists. I wanted to ask you uh, kind of a contrarian question, uh, given that you study cities and development and you know have a background in sociology. Having read the biography, I couldn't help but wonder if Huzzock was more partisan, he might have been more effective. By which I mean, if he had clearly become a partisan member of one party, he might have been more effective in getting the funding that never seemed to come. It's possible, but imagine with the vicissitudes of politics and funding and uh, the run-up to the War of 1812, you know, trying to get money out of anybody was difficult. And I think he could have aligned himself and gotten lucky if the right people had been in power. But he really, it went against the grain of who he was. He was a coalition builder, but not for political purposes. He, he was an institution builder. And he, he did not want New York City or the nation to suffer scientifically and artistically and medically because of political battles. And so he, he really did want to uh, create coalitions in support of these institutions. Yeah, and that is something that came through very clearly is how important Huzzock was to building a variety of institutions that supported civil society, the New York Historical Society and Agricultural uh, Society, a whole range of other societies I can't even remember, some of which may not still be around, but were very active at that time. And I couldn't, I wanted you to talk about the role of societies like that, of which the APS is one. In that, in that moment, um, and also to think about today where institutions like those are, are, some of them are struggling and they don't have that same type of support that they had in the 19th century and, and why that may be. They were very active and they were critical to, to uh, stabilizing the young nation. Philadelphia was, of course, the crown jewel in the United States at the time, and Husick was um, always looking to Philadelphia. It was very competitive with Philadelphia and, and then with, with Europe. I think we shouldn't overstate the extent to which, even though these organizations were very active, they were always struggling for funds then as now. 
there were several organizational models in play when at the time and one was a subscription model where you would the wealthy would pay and they would get to see the art at the Museum of Fine Arts in New York for example and then there was a charitable model where the city and private citizens would donate to the deserving poor who were treated at, at the almshouse or at the uh, at the New York hospital and so on the botanical garden one reason i think he really struggled to get funding was that it didn't fall into either of those models because there weren't enough gentlemen who loved botany who wanted to go look at the plants that they could get a big subscription going. And at the same time, the medical students it was serving and the public at large were not seen as the deserving poor, so he couldn't get big donations for it. And I think that's why he really struggled. Charles Wilson Peel and Huzzick had a, a wonderful correspondence about how hard it was to get Americans to fund museums, scientific institutions, and so on. And when I was reading those letters, those laments, it really resonated. And I think a lot of directors of institutions today uh, would hear exactly what you know they're emailing to their colleagues, um, the kind of laments today. Reading through your book, I couldn't help but think that the American Philosophical Society's library may have provided you with some sources to unearth uh, Huzzick and his life. Did you do any research here? I did. I made a number of trips here. I found one of the most exciting and emotional documents that appears in the book I found here. And uh, it was a letter from Alexander von Humboldt to Huzzick. Now, Humboldt at the time was greatest scientist in the world, the most famous, and he was in the United States on the way back from South America. And he was in Philadelphia socializing with Peel and, and people at the American Philosophical Society. And he wrote a letter to Huzzick in New York saying, I was so looking forward to meeting you. I've read your essays. I think they're brilliant but a ship is leaving Philadelphia and I'm going to grab it and sail back to Europe to work on my manuscripts from my trip. And I was so thrilled that there was a correspondence between the two because Humboldt was such an incredible scientist and I know that this would have meant the world to, to Huzzick just to hear from him. But to hear that I was going to visit and now I'm not. Imagine if Alexander von Humboldt had been walking through the Elgin Botanic Garden in New York City. What kind of attention that would have drawn to the garden? It would have drawn Jefferson's attention, for example. President Jefferson, this was 1804. It would have drawn Jefferson's attention right when Hussek was desperate for national funding. And Humboldt was, of course, a huge advocate. He was trying to persuade Jefferson to buy Peel's museum at the time. Huzzick's disappointment must have been tremendous, but finding that kind of nugget of a connection and a, an emotional moment was very exciting, and that was here at the American Philosophical Society. Great. Well, that's a great story. We love to support scholars like that, so thanks. Uh, New York City uh, plays such a central role in your story. And when I think about New York City today, I think about a lot of concrete and tall buildings. Can you talk about New York City's relationship to the natural world then and now? When Huzzick was creating his garden and Manhattan was still covered with farms, people were not as attuned to uh, a relation to the land that involved protecting it and saving it because there wasn't a sense of scarcity. And after all, there was a whole continent next door. 
it wasn't until the mid-19th century that New York leaders began to see that the and predict that the entire island of Manhattan and beyond would be covered with buildings. And they began to pr- try to protect these green spaces. That's when Central Park was built. That's when the New York Botanical Gardens, uh, was, uh, the land was preserved and the garden was founded in the late 19th century. The era when Husick was working, the relation to, to nature was quite utilitarian. He was looking for cures. He was looking for agricultural crops that could feed the nation. He was looking for commercially useful plants, trees, lumber. And that was a kind of enlightenment approach to, to nature. He was not living in the in the transcendental age. He died in 1835, right right before before the rise of the transcendental writers. Today, of course, New York is blanketed in concrete. We do have our, our wonderful parks, and we are rediscovering the idea that we have native species, some of which we've driven into extinction, but many of which are still present. And one of the most exciting things that has come out of the publication of American Eden and the approach of David Husick's 250th birthday is that Rockefeller Center itself is now reconsidering its gardens. There was a story in the New York Times about its replanting of those channel gardens, they're called, with native species in an effort to make Rockefeller Center a bit closer bring us, when we go there, a bit closer to that lost ecosystem that was there. Um, I'm very excited about that, and I think Huzzik would have been thrilled if he could know that. Dude, going back to the, the, the garden, is I was you know, blown away with his correspondence network, which really spanned the globe. Can you talk about you know, some of the items that would have been in the garden if you walked through it from you know, where in the world they may have arrived from? He had plants that most Americans had never seen. And in his greenhouse and hothouses, this conservatory complex, which sat where Radio City Music Hall is today, um, he had plants from Japan, China, Peru, the Cape of Good Hope, the West Indies, Australia, all over the world. And when visitors walked into this conservatory complex, they said they were enveloped in a swirl of colors and aromas. There were kumquats, figs, coffee trees, acacia trees. He had all kinds of um, medicinal plants from all over the world. And it was kind of an Eden of, of a combination of plants that that really in, in ecosystems around the world weren't growing in the same place. And that's one of the amazing things about a botanical garden then and now is that you can go see the world's entire ecosystems in one place. Now, to think that that was there on Manhattan Island 200 years ago through the work of one man who wrote to the likes of Humboldt and Thomas Jefferson, who initially blew him off, but then finally started sending him seeds uh, and praise from Monticello. He had, he had plants from all over the world. It was an extraordinary accomplishment. And when I talked with botanists at the New York Botanical Garden as I was working on this book, and I showed them Hazek's plant lists, two of which we still have from 1806 and 1811, they were physically shaking their heads in amazement around the table. How did this man do this by himself at the dawn of the 19th century, right on a piece of farmland on Manhattan Island? 
Now you mentioned you went to botanical gardens growing up. Where where was that? My parents are big gardeners, and my father's a retired professor of urban planning. Uh, so we would always go look at cities and their institutions. And botanical gardens were were one of the kinds of institutions we always went to look at. Longwood Gardens and the Missouri Botanical Garden, the New York Botanical Garden. Then I kind of made that my practice, and whenever I went to a new American city or a European city, I sought out the botanical gardens. It's a wonderful way to, to see cities. Huzzick's garden was really focused, as you mentioned, on research, on kind of proto-pharmacology and applied uses. As somebody that doesn't know much about botanical gardens today, how do they think of themselves as institutions today? They have reinvented themselves over and over, over the 100 years, 125 years that there have been many botanical gardens in the United States. From the time Huzzick founded his to the time of the founding of the New York Botanical Garden in the late 19th century, there were very few gardens founded. And the New York Botanical Garden kind of spawned a wave of gardens founding across the country. They, in each time period, have reinvented themselves depending on our changing relations to the natural environment. So today, many of them are very focused on environmental education, on education about biodiversity, on sending their botanists out around the world to collect specimens to try to map the native species, uh, the continent species, to figure out what we have before we lose it, to bring seeds back for seed banks, um, and some of them are also conducting pharmacological research, very much in Huzzick's vein. And I know that he would love to, to take a tour of some of these um, really high-tech labs that are in, at work in many botanical gardens. And as physician, he was also a, a surgeon in which he innovated some techniques that were really cutting edge at the time. No, no pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> yes, he brought some uh, techniques back from Britain that he had learned. Um, they're a little bit graphic, so I might not describe <laughs> describe them. Um, one was actually, um, it was actually... I was thinking of the ligature. Yeah, <laughs> so there's the ligature. <laughs> there's the ligature of the femoral artery, which he learned in Britain, and he was the first to perform it recorded on American soil. And then there was a, another surgery that he learned in Britain that uh, treated uh, hydrocele, um, which is a swelling of the male private parts and very could be very painful. And Huzzick brought this treatment back, pioneered it in New York, and then his brother-in-law, Casper Wister, used it on Charles Wilson Peel. And before this surgery, Peel and Huzzick had been kind of, you know, snippy with each other. Huzzick particularly snippy with Peel, very competitive. And, and they became great friends later in life. And I always wondered if it was because um, Peel was really grateful to Huzzick for bringing this uh, treatment back that relieved him of a great deal of pain, ongoing pain. The Peel-Huzzick relationship was really interesting to me because, you know, I've, I've been reading more and more about Peel myself, and he seems to be so different from Huzzick in some ways, which is he's really a showman. He's a partisan, uh, although that kind of goes away a little bit, but he engages in politics. And Huzzick is so different from him, and yet their intellectual interests, uh, they seem so aligned. I don't know if you could talk more about that, because that relationship, along with Hamilton and Burr, is one that weaves its way throughout your, your book. 
Husik's relationship with Burr, his ongoing relationship, and his relationship with Peel were, were really fascinating to me. And Peel was probably the person, you know, as a historian, you think, who could I, if I wanted to have dinner with somebody from my book? You know, I definitely wanted to be Husik. But I really want Peel to be there. <laughs> he was such a delightful person. He was so witty and so warm, just a, an incredibly humane person, as you know, and um, and very politically outspoken. Huzik was, I think, not as he wasn't as courageous as Peel in some ways when it came to his politics. Peel was so so forthright and. What they shared, you know, they did have very different personalities. Um, what they shared was this incredible commitment to advancing American science and a huge curiosity. And one of the great moments of rivalry comes from the discovery of a mastodon in New York in which, you know, we think about establishing a nation, but within this nation are states and the states have this incredible rivalry, especially New York and Pennsylvania at this moment. And this is where I think Huzzick and Peel have their most contentious relationship. Do you want to tell a little bit about that story? Yeah, this mastodon skeleton was uh, discovered up in upstate New York and Peel was on the lookout for this kind of thing. And he he got funding and he went racing up there and, and uh, bought bought the skeleton from the farmer and brought it, brought the bones, you know, packed them up in barrels and brought them down the river to New York, where he unpacked them sort of halfway on his first trip on the way back. And everybody went to see them. You know, Aaron Burr went to see them. Everybody in town wanted to see these bones. And Huzzick went to see them and he was so mean to Peel. He invited Peel to breakfast the next day. Peel showed up at the doorstep and Huzzick just didn't even say hello. He just snapped at Peel, said those bones should stay in New York State. They're, they're New York bones. And Peel said, don't you, don't you applaud the fact that somebody is saving them and putting them on display? And, you know, Huzzick was, I think he was really jealous of that kind of glory. And it's hard for us to think how exciting that was to people given all the sources of excitement we have now, you know, the discovery of this, this giant creature that had roamed the earth. And, it, you know, Peel was n not the instigator of that conflict at all. It was Huzzick's pettiness and jealousy. Later, they smoothed it over. But Huzzick was, was fascinated by all things scientific, but he was really uh, competitive with Philadelphia. And the one thing that Peel said once in, his, in, a, in a letter uh, that kind of made me think he would understand Huzzick's rivalry. He said, the competition between nations and, and states in the sciences is actually one of the great things because it, it means that people are striving to discover new things. If, if human beings are motivated by that will to have the glory for their state or their nation, fine, if it moves us along scientifically. So he, he understood. That's great. I, I hadn't realized that because I thought, you know, one of the, the challenges when trying to figure out Huzzick is how apolitical he comes across, but he also sees the role of nations and even states and, and rivalries uh, at, within science in order to advance knowledge. So one of the other questions I, I wanted to ask you about was thinking about biography as a genre, because was this a new format to you? Entirely. My last book was a work of organizational and historical sociology. So I wrote about the Paris Opera surviving the, the French Revolution. How did a royal institution survive the French Revolution? And I, because I was 
as trained as a sociologist, I approach the opera as a case of uh, organizational survival. When I read about David Huzzock and this lost garden at the heart of Manhattan, covered now by one of the most iconic urban spaces in the world, I knew I didn't want to turn that into a case of something organizational. I wanted to write that story. I always thought for you know the first years that I was writing the story of the garden, it gradually dawned on me that I was writing a biography, which was kind of terrifying because I'd never written one before. And I'd read lots and lots of biography. I love reading biography. And I'd also read lots and lots of British 19th century novels. And so I'd spent a lot of time in, in big, well-structured uh, books. And I began sort of halfway through the research on American Eden, trying in earnest to learn how to write a good biography. And that became its own kind of crash course. And I studied what I consider the, the greatest biographies. Of course, uh, Chernow's Hamilton. One of my favorite writers is uh, the uh, writer Andrea Wolf, who's a historian who's written incredible uh, works on early the early botanical exchange between uh, North America and Britain, the founding uh, gardeners, a book about the first four presidents and their botanical and agricultural pursuits, and then the, one of my favorite books of all time, The Invention of Nature, a biography of Alexander von Humboldt. Now, that is a remarkable book. Uh, we had her give her a talk here, just like yourself. And like your book, it is ex a wonderful window into a, a lost world and resurrecting somebody that is not as well known as, as they should be. Um, so I read your book largely as a work of history, uh, as a biography. But as you know, you, you mentioned, you're a sociologist. So what are the, some of the ways that that background um, helped you in ways that a historian might not have been able to see the same thing? A lot of historians would see all the things I saw, um, but I, I think one thing that helped um, from my sociological background was that I was attuned to organizations and to the structure of civil society. I teach on the contemporary nonprofit sector when I'm teaching about uh, civic organizations because for some reason none of my students want to learn how to run an 18th century nonprofit. So I am very attuned to the history of philanthropy and nonprofits in the United States, and I'm attuned to organizational models. What models were available to Huzzock? So when I talk about the subscription model versus the, the charitable model, that helped me see that Huzzock's failure to give us a garden that's still intact today was not his personal failure. It was um, a limitation of the available models and of the fact that he was working 90 years before the great Gilded Age fortunes that allowed the founding of the New York Botanical Garden by the likes of Carnegie, Vanderbilt, Roosevelt, and so on. Thinking of somebody that's now at a you know, one of those 21st century nonprofits, is there anything from the 18th or 19th century models that we should uh, think about bringing back? Perhaps not from the models themselves. Those were so specific to their era. I would love to bring back Huzzock's sense that these institutions serve us all. I know that many directors of museums and historical societies and libraries and so on are very attuned to the idea that, to the, to the need to serve the entire public. The entire public doesn't always see all those institutions as being for them. And sometimes that falls on political divides. I would love to see all of us embrace this 
uh, mantra of Huzzick's that science knows not party politics. Great. Well, thank you. This was uh, wonderful. And uh, thank you for writing this book. And thank you for visiting uh, here. It's such a pleasure. One of my favorite institutions. Thanks for listening to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. You can find more information about this episode, including archival collections related to its topics, on the Society's website at www.amphilsoc.org. Great Talks is produced by Brenna Holland and Joseph DeLulo. Sound design and audio production is provided by Greenhouse Media. Our theme music is New England Triptych, composed by William Schumann and recorded by the president's own U.S. Marine Band. Your host is Dr. Patrick Spiro, and I'm David Spunt.